Welcome to the LTAD Network podcast. I'm your host, James Baker. The LTAD Network is a global platform that gives you the opportunity to learn, share, and connect with experts in the field of athlete development from a range of settings, including schools, academies, universities, and elite sport. Our focus is on helping practitioners translate knowledge into practice, helping you to enhance your systems, coaching, and programs with your athletes in your environment. Our podcast is just one of a number of opportunities we create for you to be able to learn from leaders in the field of athlete development. Don't forget to sign up to the LTAD Network online learning platform at www.ltadnetwork.com and get your first month free using the code free month. There is over 150 hours of content in our video library from our workshops and conferences, as well as our youth physical development pathway resource. Alternatively, you can sign up for a free account and enjoy a number of excellent presentations, webinars, and other written resources, including the LTD Network Youth Physical Development Model. This episode is sponsored by Vald Performance. Vald Systems offer unparalleled insight into performance, injury risk, and rehabilitation. Driven by a multidisciplinary team of sports scientists, researchers, clinicians, designers, developers, and engineers, Vald Systems enable you to adopt a truly athlete-centric approach when it comes to understanding human movement, performance, injury risk, and rehabilitation. Vald Systems can be used across various disciplines from strength and conditioning to medical and rehabilitation, offering unparalleled insight into musculoskeletal and neural performance. Check out their website at www.valdperformance.com. Welcome to the LTAD Network podcast, sponsored by Valve Performance. Today, we're joined by Dr. Duncan Simpson, the Director of Personal Development at IMG Academy in Florida, where he oversees the mental performance and leadership and character development departments that deliver training to 1,500 athletes across nine sports. I, for one, am really excited to learn about the program you've got uh, that you've developed over there at IMG Duncan. So thank you very much for taking the time to join us uh, this evening. No, absolute honor, James. I'm ex I'm excited to kind of dive in and share some of the work we're doing at IMG. Awesome. So for those listeners who aren't familiar with you or your your work, your background, could you just give us a, a brief overview of your career journey to where you are now? Absolutely. My, my background is in sports psychology. I got my PhD in sports psychology at the University of Tennessee. Um, my original training, I was uh, in physical education as, a, in a, as an undergraduate student and then in sport and exercise science. And kind of it's interesting how things come full circle. You never know how you're going to use PE. Um, I didn't want to be a physical education teacher. And I didn't necessarily want to do sport and exercise science, but now um, being a, one of the co-directors overseeing all our support services, having knowledge of those those areas um, and working in a youth athlete environment, all those kind of educational experiences have definitely helped and informed my work. From my PhD, I went into academia and uh, held a couple of positions and did the kind of research, teaching and uh, service and also worked with athletes on the side. So it, I, I worked in a uh, a graduate program in sport exercise and performance psychology. Very proud of the work we did there. Had some great graduate students. And after about seven, seven and a half years, got the opportunity to come up to IMG Academy and um, eventually lead the, the mental performance department and then transitioned into the role of director of personal development, which is overseeing, as you mentioned, mental performance and leadership and character development. 
Very cool. Great journey there. What? So it, just to start off with, maybe if we touch on the difference between the, what is the difference between the mental performance part and that leadership and, and character development? What do the sort of two functions of those departments cover? Yeah, it's a, it's a question we actually get quite often because in graduate education, you often see leadership as, as part of um, mental performance or sports psychology. We've separated them and we've really worked quite hard, especially over the last couple of years, to really define and clarify roles and to make sure that the, the, the knowledge, the skills, the experience that the student athletes are getting are, are differentiated and that there's you know clarity between what people do. So the mental performance department, we're really focused on you know, improving and supporting our student athletes in the sports that they do. So in the competitive environment, making sure that they can perform to the best of their abilities. And our leadership and character development is a little more about their being. So as, a, as opposed to mental performance is about doing, it's really about being who they are as a person and who they want to become. And it's not specific to sport. It's really thinking about them as a, as an individual and how do we best support their development. So if I take the, the, maybe for the audience, the areas that we really focus on and we'll dive in deep into these in mental performance, we really talk about, um, about characteristics such as the ability to handle pressure, focus, commitment, resilience, confidence, whereas in leadership and character development, we're focused on different dimensions. We, we, we utilize the values of the academy, but we'll focus on things such as virtues, such as you know, purpose, integrity, gratitude, courage, joy, compassion, humility, forgiveness, and how do we cultivate those in our young people? I think one of the kind of misnomers that we hear a lot is that you know you develop character through sport, and I don't think that's necessarily wrong. But you can and you can learn a lot of lessons through sport, but you can also learn a lot of bad lessons, and we want to be intentional with the lessons that our young. Uh, men and women are learning through their participation and time at IMG Academy. So, so that whole set of programming is around who they want to become, who they are now and who they want to become. Whereas the mental performance is really around a, how do we support our athletes in the competitive, in the practice and competitive environment? Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. I think there's, um, yeah, it'd be, we've got a few things lined up to chat about on the mental performance side, but before we go there, you talked about those values, purpose, integrity. For someone who's listening and thinking about how you know how the, how you go about developing those things, what are the kind of teaching strategies that you would use, or the types of activities that they would participate to to develop those things outside of sport? Yeah, I'm very blessed. I we have a new head of department, uh, Dr. Pete Pachorek, who finished his PhD at the University of Florida in, in youth athlete character development. So he's really the expert. So delighted yeah. to have him in place. Uh, we have a team of four, four leadership and character development coaches uh, with Pete's, with Pete's work. And, you know, we use um, a lot of discussion based um, work in, in workshops. We'll use examples it's about the ability for student athletes to wrestle with some challenging questions when it's, you know, ethical decision-making, whether it's yeah. around integrity. Um, so depending on what the age and the gender of the athlete is, those discussions will look a little bit different, but we try to make it as interactive and as tangible as possible. So there might be, 
if we if we take a, a 30 minute workshop, the kind of plan that we try to have is no more than 10, 15 minutes of lecture or discussion. And then it's, you know, using videos, activities, reflection tools, worksheets, different, different ways to um, bring some of the content to life. And, and also we look to say, okay, how may this apply to your sport? Because ultimately all of our student athletes, you know, they, they come here, the 99% of them come here for sports. So how do we make this as tangible as possible to their sport experience as well? So how do you show humility in sport? Like, give me examples. You know, what's something you can do this week? What's actionable? We use a lot of reflection-based tools. So from a pedagogy point of view, you know, it's it's not dissimilar from any other kind of delivery. It's how do you keep their attention? How do you the switch the modes of delivery? How do you um, keep them engaged? How do you get them to reflect? How do you get them to, you know, answer through, you know, project what they would like to become? So, you know, set goals, nothing, nothing too dissimilar, but we're, we're basing it around kind of virtues as it were. Yeah. How does that sort of resonate with parents? Is it, is this something that they really buy into as well? Cause I can, you know, we know in any academy system that we're working in, you know, whether you're at a spa or, or a normal school or IMG, there's only a certain number that are going to make it. But I guess this is a, a possibly a really value, a big value add in, in the parent size if you if their children are being exposed to this sort of education too is, is that what the sort of feedback is from them yeah i think it's relatively early in terms of our shifting curriculum and the work that we're doing but we know we know through discussions with parents like this is this work is as important if not more important than any other work that we can do on campus you know academics matters to you know get onto that next level but the reality is we're trying to develop young men and women to be outstanding members of a community, whether it's IMG community or going back to their home country, we're failing them from a kind of a pastoral care if we don't, if, if we don't instill some of these things. We want them, yes, to be, you know, phenomenal athlete, you know, X, whatever, tennis, soccer, doesn't, doesn't matter what the sport is. But it, at some point, like you mentioned, that, that sport participation will finish whether it's in college or the professional ranks. So what is the person that's left behind and what impact are they going to have for the rest of their life and how are they going to be? So we really see it as a duty of care that this is such an important age in the, you know, middle school and high school age that we can help shape and craft some of these, some of these ideas. And, and obviously they're going to have more development once they go to college, but let's, let's kind of sow some of those seeds. So, I think it's the most important thing or one of the most important things. And I, I think a lot of parents would align with that. Um, the other piece, James, is, you know, our parents for the most part have been phenomenally successful in their own, in their own careers. And, you know, money is not necessarily the, the biggest challenge. So, you know, it's the, the, the children themselves are set up from a financial point of view, but how do we, you know, they, they hand them over to us. We're a boarding school. Usually the work from parents, we need to make sure that we're supporting that, their development, that they'd usually get in a home environment. So through yeah. students, through academics, through us, we need to make sure that we're doing our best to support their development. And I think that's just, that's just ethical. We just need to be able yes. to do that. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. The, forgotten about the fact that it is boarding for, is it, what's the, is it 100% boarding or is it like 
Well, how, how, how does that split? I couldn't give you the exact percentage, but I believe it's between 80 and 90%. So we'll, we'll have people from the local community and then also some parents will decide or one of the parents will decide to to move here or buy a property in the area. So some of us student athletes uh, come in and out um, on a daily basis, but it's between 80 and 90%. We have, we have about 50% international students and students, I think, from over 80 countries in the world. So it's an incredibly diverse um, student athlete population. Yeah. Wow, really interesting that split in terms of uh, international as well. That's yeah, it's fascinating. I, I I thought it would be a higher percentage from within the US. I know when we visited going back to four or five years that there was definitely an international feel to the place in terms of the student body, but yeah, I didn't realize it was that high. That's um that's that's, that's amazing. Um so just Changing gears, switching over to the, the mental performance side. I think this is obviously your, your uh, area of expertise, and I, I'm really excited to dive into this with you. Um, I think just as a, just as a starting point, from, from your experience, what does great mental performance support look like at a development level within an academy like IMG? Or what should it look like if it doesn't exist now in, a, in an academy? It's a big question to start with. I'll probably rattle off a few things. So one of the things you, you've already used, one of the terms is access. So male performance support for our, our athletes, they have access. And uh, I don't take that for granted because many youth athletes don't have access to mental performance coaches. We have a team of 13 mental performance coaches, so they have access. The other thing is, are our mental performance coaches available? Are they there when the student athletes need them? So... Yes, they have access because it's built into their program, but also making sure that our support were available when they're needed. Now, I think the kind of the other things that are, uh, it sounds it sounds kind of cliche, but the the most important things for us are care, um, developing trust, developing connection with our student athletes, and then ultimately having an impact. If we're if we're there and we're you know we care, we trust, we make it we make a connection with the athletes. Those are all really important. But if we don't have an impact, if we don't actually do the work to help them in the areas that we say we're gonna help them, then we're, you know, we're more like kind of camp counselors. And that's not, that's not the idea of the mental performance stuff. We, our intention is to have an impact and to support them in their practice and in their competitive environments through developing kind of the mental characteristics. Yeah. So, I think that just uh, the, on the connection piece, that I'm just thinking of it now. Having worked in a non, in non-English speaking countries for the last six years, I know how challenging connection can be when you don't have the language. Is there? Do you have uh, sort of multilingual staff within that that group to support? You know that fifty percent of the student body that are international, or is there uh, are most of them English speaking? in in day to day yeah there's there's a couple of staff that are that are bilingual to to a level um conversational level especially in spanish however the reality of being in a high school in the united states that our student athletes if they come here from wherever whatever country they have to assimilate and be able to develop um, their language abilities to be able to you know take the take the appropriate english take the appropriate classes in in the united states so the majority of our student athletes 
will already speak English to a to a high level. Some will come in with limited English ability, and and we we have um, you know language center within the school that will quickly improve that. So initially, though, though there is some challenges with language barrier, but those with some of our new student athletes. But after six months to a year, those don't tend to persist. Ideally, we'd we'd love more bilingual staff. The reality is also when we we work with our our athletes during groups and teams. And invariably, when we have an athlete from a country who who doesn't speak English, there's someone else, uh, another student athlete, or sometimes a coach that will be there that can speak that language. Um, so it's very rare with our full time student athletes that language becomes a massive barrier. Okay. So I mean, you could just by the fact that IMG is invested in having thirteen mental mental uh, performance coaches on staff says, says a lot about how the organization values this, which is fantastic. I mean, we didn't even have, I think, a quarter of that when we were at Aspire Academy with, you know, admittedly, we don't have 1500 athletes to cater. We didn't have 1500 athletes to cater to, but it is obviously a real statement of intent to have that kind of um, uh, number of staff. So what, when, on the ground day to day, when they're working with athletes, what does what does what's that what does that look like? What's that delivery um, with the athletes look like? Yeah, you, you like these small questions. The we we have nine sports, so contextually in the the, the practice and performance environments for nine sports are, are very different. The practice environment for for tennis. Is contextually and the the culture of tennis is very different from let's say American football. Football. So how practice is run and how competitions are done, it makes a difference to what kind of delivery and what delivery looks like. Um, And I'll dive a little bit more into uh, a little bit more into that. So we have kind of the sport type. We have the sport culture. We also have different positions within the sports. Yeah. Obviously, especially with team sports, we have, you know, we have um, age, age and gender differentiation. We have ability. We have intellectual and emotional um, different levels. We have previous exposure to mental performance training. We have cultural considerations. Yeah. So all all those are variables, and they present challenges, but not challenges in a negative way. Like opportunities of how do we how do we do this work. Um, and I think because of some of those factors, you know, I feel incredibly grateful that our executive team has supported us in the growth of the team to get to 13 mental coaches and have that foresight that this is an important, important piece. Delivery itself, I'd say, I put it into kind of four main buckets. We, we have delivery in a classroom, which would be tend to be more pedagogy, um, exchange of information, educational. We have um, delivery in a practice environment that we call life coaching. So being in the practice environment, yeah. sometimes a mental coach will be running part of practice. Sometimes it's in addition to and supporting the sport coaches. We have support at competitions and tournaments, and then we also have one-on-one availability. So kind of delivery happens in four different ways. Yeah. Uh, so that's kind of, there's a lot of variables. There's a lot of different ways to do it. Um, and it is very contextual, which I know doesn't always, you know, satisfy listeners. Um, but I can certainly give examples and be more specific on certain sports. Yeah. 
Okay, if we if we took a, a, let's take some contrasting examples. I mean, when when we visited in 2019, uh, we watched you delivering in tennis. So maybe if you could talk us through that uh, a sport like tennis, and then maybe a, a comparison to how it would work with one of your big team sports, whether it's basketball or American football. What what would how does that delivery vary? Yeah, I feel very fortunate to have worked in tennis and, you know, kudos to kind of the, the directors there. They've really seen that the value of, of integration and transfer of knowledge happens best when the coaches are integrated into practice environment. I think there's always a time and a place to do work in a classroom, but yeah. they, they were very clear that they wanted us out on the courts and they wanted us to be involved and, um, they wanted us to see the work that the coaches were doing, see the athletes in the moment and be involved in and around that practice environment. So when I worked in tennis each week, I, I was very fortunate to be given part of an actual sport practice time where I would be running a mental performance um, drill, but it would be integrated into sports. So they'd be playing tennis most of the time. And how that kind of worked, I, I do have a tennis background, so I'm very fortunate, but also cognizant of not overstepping, you know, my boundaries. So I'd work with the coaches and say, okay, these are the things that I want to communicate. These are the, these are the things I want to work on. Like, what are great drills that you have that we can switch the emphasis from maybe a technical or a tactical point of view to a, to a mental point of view um, or a psychological point of view. So any I'd say just about any tennis drill or tennis activity, usually the coach is looking at it from a, a technical or strategy lens. What we yeah. would do is try and think about try and think about it from a psychological lens. So it might be, hey, we're gonna work on something. If I just give a very simple example, 50 balls down the middle, it's kind of a consistency drill and maybe something for the coaches to develop rhythm and to look at technique and to look at footwork. Whereas we're looking at it from a focus. So we'd be just shifting the emphasis and the language that we're using. It might be the same drill, but the emphasis of the drill is very different. And, yeah. you know, we, we did quite a lot of work and, and really thought about um, the concepts of constraints and using constraints. And um, from a psychological point of view, I, I think th those have been things that have, we've really started to look at how do we integrate more into that practice environment. Yeah. Now, is that something like when when we were with you, it was very clear there was a strong relationship between you and the coach and, and, and the athletes. Was that something that the coaches were immediately bought into or was that a process that came over time as you demonstrated uh, value as a as a practitioner? Great question. I think it's, it's yes. And I think um, the reality is that we work in a business and that the student athletes pay for these services. So the coaches, the sport coaches are expected to give other staff access to their athletes. Now, certain coaches can make it difficult for you if, if that's, if that's their choice, but I think the word you use was value. So my, my approach has always been, and, and the way that I talk to my staff and empower my staff is that, you know, yes, we have access, but you also have to provide value. And I think if you provide value and value can look, you know, a little different across different coaches and different sports, but if you can provide consistent value, that access will become 
will open up and coaches be open-minded about utilization of you. If you if you know the sport, you know the language, if you're including them in the decision-making, if you're mimicking and reinforcing the messages they're giving and including them and giving them autonomy and, hey, what about this? What do you think about this? Hey, any updates on your athletes? That's when we have really great relationships. So ultimately, you know, across, you know, we've got 200 plus sport coaches, then yeah, the, sometimes there's there's some challenges, but I think the vast majority of our, our coaches do a phenomenal job of integrating and including our mental performance staff. And we also have to recognize of kind of having that, the art and science of, you know, sometimes it, it is the coaches, it is the coaches domain and we have to be careful not to, you know, overstep and we, you know, we're not going to interrupt a coach. We're not going to, you know, drag the attention away or be a distraction for, from a coach when they're doing the work that they need to do. But it, it is about a partnership. So we, we have phenomenal coaches, but sometimes, you know, with new coaches, it is an education because they've never had a mental performance coach and um, yeah. they've never had, they've, they've always done the mental training or they've always done the SNC. They've always done nutrition. So how do they utilize the staff? We have to we have to support them on that journey. Yeah, we definitely saw things like that at Aspire as well, where the you know the athletics coach was used to be in the jack of all trades and did all everything from massage to S and C. And yeah, there's a there's a there's a skill to being able to work with getting them to work with those people as well. So yeah, to- totally appreciate what you're what you're saying there. And I, I think especially when you've got you know, I think I think it's different when you've got a multi-sport academy like Aspire Academy or IMG versus when you have one single sport academy like you might get in the English Premier League where there's a, a sort of philosophy all the way down, but you've got, like you said, nine different sports, 200 different coaches spread across those sports. Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a different beast. In terms of the allocation of your staff, in in order to get those relationships and to get that uh, connection with the sport, are your coaches allocated to work with certain sports and they they dedicate their time to, say, one or two sports? Um, How how do you um, manage that? Yeah, we look at... There's a lot of different variables that we look at, but most of our staff are... um, all of our staff actually now, we've, we've made a shift. They're all connected to either one sport or two sports. So we have AM and PM sports. So some of our sports will, you know, train in the morning, go to school in the afternoon and vice versa. So for, for example, if you work with boys tennis, boys tennis is in the morning and you could work with um, a baseball team in the afternoon because boys tennis is not training in the afternoon. So you could then work with baseball in the afternoon. Some of our some of our sports go AM PM. So some of our mental coaches will be in a singular sport like golf. We have a mental coach that is just primarily in golf. And we we have that actually across a few sports where some of our mental coaches just stay in a singular sport. Those, those decisions, it, it becomes pretty complex of you know making sure that the you know the the sport relevance, the sport background, you know, the history, have they worked with that sport? Have they got relationships with that sport sometimes invariably staff members leave how do we how do we navigate and we work through every year with sport assignments the reality is we want consistency in sports so the answer is they they work in kind of one or two sports and some athletes some some sorry some mental coaches like being in different sports it gives them that variety during the day they're not stuck in one environment and some of our mental coaches just 
love one sport and that's the sport they want to work in. And when we can support that, we will do. Um, it, it, it really kind of differs every year, but one or two sports is the answer. Yeah. Just conscious, uh, we were going to draw an example between tennis and one of your team sports. So just cycling back around a little bit, maybe if we, if you could give us the uh, the contrast and example of your um, mental performance delivery with with a team sport. Yeah, if you take a team sport and if you just think about the the physical environment, a tennis court. When, and obviously I worked on tennis, you can you can talk to and you can communicate across maybe a couple of courts and you can walk into that practice environment and you can you can stand on the side of the court and you can interact and there's natural breaks in play. If you take something like football that's on a on a much larger field, there's there's a group of athletes. Um, inevitably it's louder, there's whistles, they've got helmets on, um, they're running plays and they're running sequences of plays because that is the sport, they, they run sequences of plays, the breaks, the natural transitions, the availability, just the physical environment to be able to insert yourself and to communicate makes that environment very different. So our mental yeah. coach, who's, who's very good in football, will be in that practice environment, but it's going to be on the sideline. And it's going to be, you know, understanding that sport. And luckily, our mental coach, Elliot, who worked, who works in football, was a previous football player in college. So he understands the context and, and understanding how practices are run. And you also, there's, you know, there could be a hundred athletes out on the field that you're trying to deal with, whereas a tennis group is six to 10. So it's yeah. just different. So what we say is as a, as a general, general guideline, he's coaching between the cracks and supporting our practice, but most of his formal delivery will be in a classroom setting it's just contextually, that's how it works better. Um, and again, when you're on the road, you may have time on the bus or on the plane to have those conversations one-on-one -on -one and get that opportunity to travel with the team. But the practice environment from a physical, from the culture, just, you know, even the uniform makes delivery different. Yeah, that's a great example. So going in a little bit deeper now in terms of specific mental characteristics, what are the the key things that you, that you're aiming to develop in your in your long term plan at IMG? Yeah, we've been we've been on this journey. I, I came from a you know a, a research background in academia, so when I came in, I really wanted to to be data informed, and yeah. we looked at a lot of different a different youth athlete assessments in the mental space and and tried a lot and. Nothing quite, nothing quite fit this context and what we do. So about two years ago, we partnered with a couple of researchers, a good colleague of mine and a psychometrician at New Mexico State University. And we developed our own youth athlete assessment for mental performance. And through kind of, you know, exploratory and confirmatory factor analysis and a lot of um, psychometric work that was not mine, that was uh, luckily we had an amazing statistician on board that, we really do um, what came out was five five factors. Uh, and we we had thousands of student athletes because we have 1500 and they take it multiple times. So we had really, really strong um, data set. And our five factors are um, handling pressure, commitment, confidence, focus, and resilience. And and those are the those are our, our big five factors. So 
again, we, we went into this journey of kind of throwing everything into an initial assessment and going through a lot of kind of uh, psychometric work. We started with 15 different factors based on the evidence and the research, and we've narrowed it down to five. And those are, those are pretty broad categories, as you can understand, but that, those are the five that guide our work. And the more data we get, the stronger the assessment becomes and the, the stronger our data, uh, our pool becomes. So that's we're, we're, we're pretty proud and happy of where we've landed. And, um, and it also aligns with our experience and the coach's experience of working with the athletes over the last, you know, we've had male performance coaching here for probably the last 30 years. So none of this is, none of those topics are probably a big surprise to the listeners, um, but it was important for us to go through that journey. Yeah, I think it, it sounds like you've been through a really solid, solid process there. Is that um, youth athlete assessment something that sort of, that you keep internally or is that a, a sort of a publicly available piece of research that people could could read? It's going, we're working on actually on um, two articles for publication. Uh, we we don't know about the availability of the assessment itself. Um, we have IP around it. So at some point we'll, you know, we want people to be able to use it. My, my thing with it and, and partnering with a academic institution was always like, we want to pressure test it. We want to, we want to put it out for publication. We want to get feedback. We want to get criticism. We want to, we want to be tested. If it's not good enough, let's, let's improve it. Um, we're really, buoyant on you know the the power and the strength of the data that we have um but again we're open to public when we're not perfect so we're not gonna we're not gonna hide it it's just not available yet we're working towards publication yeah okay awesome so in terms of those characteristics that you've mentioned i managed to catch scribble four of them down on my notepad we have pressure commitment resilience um Actually, I've got three. <laughs> uh, focus and confidence. Focus and confidence. Yeah, similar to a couple of other models that I've seen as well. Have you, have you come across the five C's model, Chris Harwood, the guy that they built around uh, some soccer? Stuff. Yeah. Some, some similar, not not exactly the same, but some similar themes um, that came come through on that that model. Um, what does you know as some as an athlete? let's say they're, de they're developing these skills, what does someone who is sort of at the end of that journey from those five factors, what, what should they be capable of, um, whether that's in the, in the field of play or in their training, what, what are your expectations of, of the outcomes in those areas for your athletes? Yeah, we, we think about it as, you know, if we've had an athlete for a significant period of time and they're transitioning out of the academy, what, what from a behavioral point of view, what would we like to see? And ultimately, that idea of they, they would be committed, they would be, they'd have the ability to handle pressure, they'd be able to focus on the right things at the right time, they'd be, have strong self-belief, and um, they would be a resilient individual. And for us, it's, you know, can they, can they meet the demands of their practice and competitive environment at IMG Academy and also as they transition into college pros, can they meet the demands of that competitive environment from a psychological point of view? So yeah. those are some of the things you look at. I think one of the things I've been very clear with the staff on 
and we there's a lot of kind of vernacular around this. I really talk about like these are these are psychological characteristics, skills, uh, and and when I say characteristics, these are being like we 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 are confident, we we're, we're committed, we're we're resilient, we're focused. Whereas skills are things we do. So when I think about skills, we talk about we we do breathing, we do self talk, we do imagery, we do pre performance routines. We do communication. So the skills that, that are fundamental, you know, there's actually not too many when you boil it down. People like to make it complicated, but there might be five, six really key skills that I kind of just listed. Goal setting as well. If, if, we, if we use those skills and we develop those skills and we develop those skills to support and develop those characteristics. So I'll take an example like self-talk. Self-talk is a skill that we can develop. And self-talk can support our resilience. It can support our ability. It, it can be used to um, work on our attentional control and focus. It, self-talk can be used to enhance our confidence. So the, the, the emphasis of the skill, teaching the skill, can then we can then utilize that skill to make an impact upon those characteristics. Breathing, for an example, as an emotional regulation tool, that's often used as an emotional regulation tool can be used to when we make a mistake, how do we become resilient? Well, we can use, we can use it from that point of view. We can also use breathing um, in, in a way to uh, manage our focus. When we become distracted, we use our breath, bring us back to the present moment. So we teach fundamental skills to then with the emphasis of enhancing X characteristic and we understand through our assessment, okay, these are the areas that we may want to work on as a group or a team. But as I mentioned, like it's data informed, it's not just data driven. We use the data to help inform, but we speak to the athletes, we speak to the coaches, we observe them in practice, we understand the context of the sport, what are the most important things, the ability level, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of things that kind of go into that intervention planning. But I think it's important to hear that the differentiation between what we maybe term as a skill and a characteristic. Yeah, no, I think we explained that really well actually there uh, in that in that section. So, could you maybe how does how does the application of those skills? If we use the same two examples of tennis and uh, the American football, how might the application of those skills? differ between the athletes in those sports? So I would start with understanding the intention behind using that skill. So if I'm, if I'm just teaching an athlete to breathe, then we can, I can teach an athlete to breathe in five minutes, mm -hmm. but the skill is actually applying it at the right time with the purpose of doing X. So using breathing to enhance our focus is very different to using breathing to also regulate and help with uh, mistake management. So yeah. what is the intention of using um, that skill? So self-talk, for example, in, in, in tennis, we may use uh, self-talk to, you know, um, help guide our, uh, you know, as part of a pre-performance routine to guide our attentional focus. So if we're a server, okay, you know, what am I, you know, what am I dialing in at? You know, what's my, what's my point plan? Where, what's my target? The same roundabout skill set will be, okay, I'm going to use 
self-taught to guide my focus as I as I come up to the line as a you know offensive lineman or as I'm you know if I'm a quarterback and I'm scanning you know talking myself through what what does the field look like what do I have to do here so again the, the fundamental skill is not too different but the application and the the actual task that you're using that focus for obviously differs across the sport and I think one of the when you when you boil it down and make it relatively simplistic means that some of our mental coaches don't necessarily have a strong sport background in all the sports that they work with but they can they do know the mental game very well and then use the athletes say okay well this is the skill like how can you use this like in what context is this important for you and i can't even begin to explain all the different positions in football or lacrosse or baseball and the differentiation between what's most important for a pitcher versus a catcher versus first base in, in baseball versus different positions in lacrosse, which I don't know at all. So we have to rely on the athletes to also make that connection and, and, and bridge the gap too. And, and also the coaches, like what different positions need different skills and different characteristics at different times. So it's not, it, it isn't a one size fits all. So it's about kind of, there is this analogy that people use a lot of a mental skills toolbox and developing that toolbox, but also knowing how to apply those tools in the right moment is the crucial bit. It's not just developing the tools if you can't apply them when it's most important. And that's where I kind of come back to meeting the demands of competition and practice. Yeah. And is there, you know, talking about a right time to apply the skills in, in sport, is there a, a right time to introduce those skills to athletes especially when you've got such a wide age range as you have at um img in a middle school through to high school if i'm right the age range is about 11 to 18 is that correct yeah we have middle school and up to usually up to 18 we we do have some postgraduates so we'll have some 19 year olds but yeah middle school and high school so from 11 up to 18 the, the fundamental development of those skills uh, I think is important across age groups. I'll then go to, you know, when to apply and, and how to apply um, may, may look very different based on, based on the age. If I take something like a pre-performance routine, I worked in golf for quite a while, a, a pre-performance routine, you know, I, th I think that's pretty well established. It's important in, in golf for a number of reasons. I don't necessarily need to dive into those, but for our youngest golfers, the fundamental understanding of why they need to do a routine might not actually be the most important thing, but the most important thing is for them to get the behavioral component of doing a routine consistently. Over time, getting them to understand the why and the intricacies and, and the ability to use it most effectively will, will develop over time. So self-awareness and the ability to self-reflect is, is obviously limited with some of our younger athletes. But I also would say that it is ability-wise dependent because we have what I'd say is, and, and don't catch me too much on the terminology, but elite, you know, 13, 14-year-olds comparative to their peers, some of the best athletes in the world for their age group. So yeah. that, their ability to have that sport knowledge is way ahead of an 18-year-old in the same sport. So we don't just look at age. It's, it's also that emotional, intellectual, emotional uh, uh, maturity and their sport maturity. They may have played tennis for 10 years. Yeah. And so 
again, it's not, it's not easy. Um, if I take the kind of five characteristics, um, I think something that we've, we're, we're, we're trying to wrestle with James and, and trying to get through. And I don't know that we have the right answer yet is looking at, we're going to be informed by the data in terms of, is there, is there a pathway? Is there a clear, okay, we need to teach. These are the things that are most important at this age. So we're going to rely on the data. Like is confidence the most important thing for the younger kids? Mm -hmm. If I take it anecdotally and I worked in tennis for a long time, sometimes we'd have our youngest kids, our lowest level kids say handling pressure. They were worse at handling pressure. Well, they also didn't play tournaments. So handling pressure, they may quote unquote be lowest on their ability to handle pressure, but it also wasn't the most important thing to develop on their journey right now. Whereas our elite 16, 17, 18-year-olds, some are trying to go pro, the ability to handle pressure is absolutely important. And some of the, under, the other things they've already developed either through their own development. So we're trying to figure out, we, we, we really believe you know, confidence is a, is a building block at the bottom. Handling pressure might be at the top. We have focus, resilience, commitment. We're trying to figure out this. We don't want to put too much structure around it, but mm. we're going to look at the data and what does the data say based on age groups and, and parcel out? Is there, is there a sliding scale? Is there a way that what's most important to that age group? Um, we haven't got there yet, but I'd say kind of handling pressure at the top end, confidence at the bottom, the other three, focus, you can definitely put it in the more competitive area, higher at the top, resilience, com commitment. We haven't quite got the uh, the uh, that that model perfect yet, but in time, in time, we might be able to do that. But also, I'm hesitant to say it has to be this because a 12 year old might need to really work on their ability to handle pressure. So I'm not going to say they can't work on that because that's reserved for the oldest kids. That that's not the way to do it. Yeah. No, I think that's really interesting. I think you know, I'm thinking of my journey of trying to figure out the long term physical development puzzle and it was definitely through a number of iterations of right what do we really need to emphasize now and what do people need and whilst there were there was a pattern that became clear with with the physical side probably to a greater extent than the than the, the psychology side there was always anom anomalies that don't fit the model and you've got to be prepared and i think that that's where if you've got clarity around the outcome that you're trying to achieve it, you just you're you're still working towards that it's just in a, in a different order if you don't you know if you haven't as long as you haven't lost sight that it's something that needs to be done bringing something to the fore you know particularly when the athletes are younger you have time to sort of bring those things back around later i think um, yeah. the one for me is a is a, is an interesting one and we've this is something you know being in the middle east that there's there's varying levels of commitment for for a number of cultural reasons but what does what are your expectations around commitment at those at those different ages? Is it specifically around training? Is it about competing? What what does good commitment look like, and and how do you um, monitor that within the academy? Really good question. One of the things we have worked on is consistency of language and what we mean by that, and using. Um, operational definitions for each of these terms. So for us, the commitment is that ability to stay dedicated to your goal and task with effort and determination. 
So a, a young athlete begins as they develop, sorry, as they begin to develop that interest in sport, we have to nurture commitment and help them to understand the importance of kind of dedicating time and effort to improve, to make sure it's matched with their, their goal. And, and if we take kind of that, that concept of pathways, we have, we have student athletes, they could be in the same group. And one person's goal is I want to be a professional. And the other one is, ah, it's just kind of recreational and I don't want to be a professional, but as two 14 year olds, they're at the same level right now. Yeah. One's aspiration in the next four years is to go on this path and, and working with the coaches in the sports, because a lot of our coaches have been there and done that is guiding them through that process of what does, what might it take to get to this level? If you want to go to this college and play at this level, these are the things you need to be able to do, whether it's, um, in, you know, from a physical from a physical development point of view, whether it's a skill set point of view, a strategy point of view, like these are the things if you're going to play at that level that you'll need to work on. I and I, I keep going back to tennis, but tennis is a good one because obviously the the academy was founded by Nick Bolletieri, and tennis was the founding sport. So we have had a you know story tradition over forty years of with some of our coaches who have been here that long of they quote unquote know what it takes to get to to make that transition into professional tennis we know like you'll need to do pretty much x y and z there's a it's kind of a recipe and and again it's not prescriptive but if you're you know if i just take the if i switch analogy to track and field if you know you're 18 and you're running 100 meters in 12 seconds you're probably not going to be a 100 meter sprinter and if you're if you're beginning your tennis journey at 16 or 17, you're probably not going to be a professional in the next five years. That's just the reality of the sports. So our, our, our coaches, they understand what what it might take. So commitment is, hey, how do we how do we understand their motivations, their goals? Also, hopefully they're aligned with sometimes their skill sets, the parental expectations. And how do we best support them? Well, we're going to support them. We're not going to kill dreams, but there's also reality of like, this is what it's going to take. And for some athletes, they either can't get there, they can, you know, get better um, inevitably, but they're not necessarily going to be able to get to that professional status. Yeah. How do we support that? How do we make sure they, they still have the best experience possible? And the last bit I'll add is even in what I'd say is high competitive, we're a developmental academy, but we definitely have elite athletes to make the transition to be the very best. It's, it's a, social and, uh, a social challenge for our athletes to not want to belong because it's human nature to want to belong and we regress to the mean. And if you want to be outstanding, even at the academy, you have to do something different to your peer group, because most of your peer group, even though they'll do what's the kind of the, the, the average, the, the medium level, you're going to be a professional, you're going to be at the highest level, you're probably going to have to do more, and you're going to have to do it with more intensity and more focus, and you're going to have to do all these extra things. So that sense of belonging is challenged within our athlete population. Friend of mine, smart businessman, not, not necessarily in sport, he said to me, you are the, the average of the five people you spend the most 
time with. So pick wisely in terms of who you, who you associate with. And it, like in that, in terms of trying to stretch those athletes within the academy, like that are, you know, the, they are those high performers. And, you know, realistically, we might only be dealing with, you know, certainly in the environments that I found myself in in the past 10 years is you might only be dealing with one or two of them. Is there value for people that are those outliers, even if they're in different sports, to kind of bring them together to to stretch each other? Um, for, in your opinion, I think there is value. I don't think we probably do that well enough. I think you know, and this is anecdotal, but there is a ripple effect when we see, you know, one of our athletes you know, get recognized, what well, I'd say, on, on a world stage. So I remember one of our tennis players, um, Whitney Osulgre, won the uh, French Open, uh, the French Open Juniors when she was 15, and you can play up to 18. And that had a ripple effect across campus. Like, literally, you have the best junior tennis player in the world. And then yeah. when, you know, some of our um, baseball athletes get drafted straight out of high school into the major leagues, and some of our, you know, our... Um, alumni from football and um, basketball again drafted into NFL and NBA like it has a ripple effect and people are like wow like I know that kid and I was hanging out with that kid and like we can do it too and we and, and with the storied history you certainly see it the other thing I'd say that's somewhat unique to tennis here is that we have full-time professional athletes that train and play here so some of our student athletes get that opportunity to play and hit with professionals. And a lot of them have been alumni here. Mm -hmm. I think of, of Sebi Corda, uh, Daniel Collins, you know, uh, Daniel's been top 10, Sebi's top 20 in the world, Misha Kachmanovic, he's top 40 in the world, um, Kei Nishikori, number four in the world. Like all these players train here and have trained here. So you see these athletes and it's like, okay, well, wow, they, they, they were in my spot. Like they they've done what I I'm trying to do, so seeing people having that role models definitely helps. Awesome. It's almost worth the price price of admission alone if you get to <laughs> get to train with those guys. Um, yeah, brilliant. So, conscious, I've got one last question for you, which I think is um, we'll we'll unconscious of the time I've taken from you already, but. You talked about the role of the technical coaches and the connection that your performance staff have with them. Other coaches across the organization, like your strength and conditioning coaches or your athletic trainers, physios, whichever terminology you're using uh, over there now, um, what role do they play in sort of application of, of the mental performance component? Are they expected to be advocates of it and reinforcing those things in their environment too? Yeah, we've we've really made a push to to be an interdisciplinary team, and I know that 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 term is thrown out a lot, but we really see it as like how do we best support that student athlete? We all have roles and we all have expertise, but the reality is that some of our staff have more touch points. So our athletic trainers will see some of our athletes on on a daily basis through treatment, you know, prehab, rehab. They'll see a, a, a student athlete, whereas the mental coach may see them once or twice a week or three times a week. Our strength coach will see um, our, you know, our student athletes on a more consistent basis than our leadership and character development and mental coaches. 
So the communication between the staff is absolutely important because, you know, what they're what what we're trying to do is support their development. So how do we make sure as a group that we that we communicate, that we um, break down those silos, that we make sure that we're we're um, you know using the data, being data informed, sharing. You know, while I you know today so and so struggled in the weight room, they really seem distracted. Something's going on with them. They just seemed a little bit off. You know, I'd suggest go and have a talk to them. So we use a, what we call a pod system. So that group, that high performance group meets every week. Um, so all the staff that work in each sport will meet every week to discuss and look at the data to say, okay, some, some of these athletes are trending in this direction or this athlete's injured or this athlete needs additional support or this athlete's a red flag. You know, maybe there's a mental health referral that needs to go in. So that communication, it's not perfect, but it's got so much better over the last few years. And I think it's it comes down to making sure everybody in that team feels valued and making everyone feel like they have a role and a contribution. So, you know, at times the emphasis might be on, you know, strength and conditioning and we really need to work on the athletes and support them in that space. Or sometimes it's on the, the character development or sometimes it's about nutrition. So how do we come together as a group? If you think about all those departments, they, you know, the SNC coach needs to be able to work with the athletic trainers and the SNC coach is going to be limited if the, if their nutrition isn't, you know, on par. And if, you know, if their nutrition isn't on par, you know, maybe it's affecting them mentally. And so the departments have to work together. Um, and we, we've made good strides in that space. So the other staff are absolutely essential in supporting the mental staff in the work that we do. And we're very lucky that, you know, Taryn as our, our VP um, has been very forthright. Like we will work together. It's not a, it's not a, uh, a nice to do it, it is it is what we will do because it's the right thing for the athlete and we need to put the right people around them and it's not about us and it's about what's the right thing for the athlete so you know we have to recognize that everyone wants to feel valued and everybody wants their time and everyone wants to expel their expertise but there's also a time and a place whereby other people you need to take a step back and let other people do that work Picking up on one thing you said there, you mentioned uh, if the data is telling us, you know, that something's up, what, what, what is that data that you're using as an indicator in that process? So we, from uh, S&C and SWOT Science, um, we collect data. So they, they do a lot on um, vertical jump on the, mm -hmm. you know, uh, what they call the, the force plates. Um, they kind of use the... I can't remember the camera system off the top of the camera system on top of the um, weight racks. Um, elite form. Yeah, elite form. Yeah. They also use uh, the valve. Um, I can't remember. Like I'm not an SNC coach. <laughs> they, they'll, they'll use a lot of that data. So for example, if we see an athlete trending downwards on um, vertical jump height, it might not just be an assumption that something's wrong, but it's something that we may have a discussion around. The other thing that we track now um is uh, a weight. So something that's being uh, implemented from our performance nutrition staff is weight. And we also use our athlete management system can flag if an athlete loses, loses or gains a certain percentage of weight in a, in a given time period. So that will flag. And, you know, there might be a good reason why they've lost that weight, or it might be something that we need to pay attention to. So really being critical on those athletes, the, um, the weight transition as well. So, we recognize 
they're also in you know in that that puberty time zone so weight weight fluctuations happen but we're aware of that so again that's a discussion with the snc coach you know, is weight gain is that something that we're trying to do is that something that we need to support is that something da 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 da, da? so again yeah. use that data to help inform and the last bit is you know we also um in some of our sports are monitoring well-being and how they're self-evaluating around sleep and a daily kind of wellness check and obviously yeah. mental health is something that we that we that we capture a couple of times to to you know check in on our athletes yeah Brilliant. Thanks for giving us the, the clarity on that. That's great. So thank you very much for your time. I've really enjoyed the conversation. I've got about three A4 pages of notes that I've scribbled down myself. Um, I'm sure there's tons of people are going to take away from listening to this. So really appreciate you giving us an hour or so of your time to record it. If people want to um, get in touch with you or, or, um, see what you're doing through social media or anything like that is there anywhere that people can uh, kind of follow along the, the work that you're doing what's the the best channels for you yeah i'm happy to happy for people to reach out i'm on linkedin hopefully be able to find me my name um on twitter or x as it were um, at sports like dunk don't post as much as i used to IMG academy you can you can find it on the website i would say there's also an img academy um, APD, which is our, our department. There's a, there's a Twitter handle for that. I think it's IMGA performance. And my email is uh, duncan.simpson at imgacademy.com. I'd kind of say the one, the one quick takeaway, James, if, if you're a coach or, you're a, you, you know, someone that works with the athletes from a mental point of view, we can make it incredibly complicated. Hopefully I didn't do that today, but I kind of asked these kind of two kind of reflective questions like how do you want your athletes to think feel and act differently mm -hmm. so be crystal clear and how do you how do you want them to think feel and act differently and then once we once you get crystal clear on that what kind of knowledge skills and experiences do they need to make that change so what mm -hmm. what information do they need what skills do they need to develop and what experiences through practice through competition, do they need to develop those? So we can't just, like, if we're going to develop resilient individuals, like, what would a practice environment look like? Like we yeah. have to be able to provide them those experiences. So have a think what your athletes need to think, feel, and act differently. And then ultimately, what are the skills, the knowledge, the skills, and the experiences they need to enact that behavioral change? Yeah, I think they're two really, uh, really good questions to, to, to think about as a, I'll be stealing those and putting them on my uh, <laughs> on my list of things to do with our technical directors and coaches that we're working with in the different sports. So no, that's a great um, take-home point to end it on. Again, thank you so much for your time. Um, really, really enjoyed the conversation and learning about the work that you've been doing over IMG. I think it's a, you know, an outstanding example of the mental performance support in uh, in this youth athletic development space. So thanks so much for coming on to share it. I really appreciate that, James. I appreciate the opportunity. And again, the 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 work I'm able to do is because we have an amazing team, an amazing staff, an amazing um, executive team that support us. So I can't leave without recognizing that it's the staff that do the work. I, I get the opportunity to to support them um but it's our, our mental coach our leadership coaches on a daily basis that do the work as well as all the other support staff that work around the athletes and the coaches that allow us 
to do our work. Um, yeah. So again, very, very fortunate to work in this environment. Thank you for tuning in to the LTV Network podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast to keep up with all the latest episodes. If you want to continue learning with us, sign up at www.ltvnetwork.com and access presentations and resources from experts around the world. Use the code FREEMONTH at the sign up to get your first month free.